on David. We've spent the first Sunday night of each month talking about David. And tonight we come to what some would call an epitaph of David. And it's a chapters 21 through 24 are not necessarily chronological, but they tell a story, a story of King David. And it's ups and it's downs. So you think about King David. What are, what are a few things that come to mind? What's, y'all can talk back. What's one? David and Goliath. Absolutely. As David would, would uh, say that he would go down and fight that giant. No one else would go. That it. What else comes to mind? Hmm? Bathsheba, Bathsheba, definitely, David, Bathsheba, and, and Uriah, uh, definitely a low point in his life. Well, King David had ups and downs, and, and I hope as a body of believers that we can relate to David. We too have our ups and downs. We have our moments of triumph and our moments of defeat, whether that defeat is at the hand of an enemy or defeat of our own actions. And so tonight as we look at a, a few of these, in, within these chapters, sort of a chapters of twos, it's got two narratives, two narrative stories. One of them a little seems out of place, and then we'll start with that, talking about some Gibbonites. There are two lists. There are lists of wars, and then there is a list of mighty men that are in there. So um, keeping in mind that David didn't do this by himself. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. That in our Christian walk, we don't accomplish everything by ourselves. There's always people beside us. People that are helping, uh, helping us get where we're going. And there are two poems. David is well known for his psalms. And here we have two psalms. Two poems. So King David. We start out in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 21, the first verse. It says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because it, he has put the Gibbonites to death. So the king called the, called the Gibbonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibbonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike, down, strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibbonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It's not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it us for, for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do, you, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us and planned to destroy us, so that we should, we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us, so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gilbeth of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So we see just a, a out of, maybe an out of place story about a challenge that David had to deal with and how he dealt with it. If you go back over to, to Joshua chapter 9, you will see this story of how this occurred, uh, how this promise was made. And I'll, I'll just paraphrase it without getting too deep into it. 
Let's see if I can move this. Eddie, can you, you may have to reboot it. Over in Joshua 9, it says, in, starting in verse 19, But the leaders said to all the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them. This we, do, this we will do to them. Let them live, lest wrath be upon us. And you see, the Gibeonites came to Joshua. Israel had crossed the Jordan, and Israel had defeated Jericho, and had defeated Ai. And the Amorites had heard of this and they were from the town of Gibeon and there were some other towns that they were associated with and they were fearful they were fearful of what God was doing and so they came to Israel they disguised their attire and they wore worn out clothes and worn out sandals they packed their donkeys with old food that was dry and let's say molded made it look like they had come from a long way off and they came to Israel and they, they asked them to swear an oath to them to protect them, that they had come from this far away place. Israel did not seek God's counsel in this. They agreed. And then they found out that the Gibeonites were actually Amorites and they were from an area. They were going to be their neighbors. And God had told Israel to destroy all in the land of Canaan. And so they had made an oath to not harm a group of people that God had told them to destroy. But because they swore an oath, and they swore this oath to God, they kept that oath. And Saul, in his zeal, if you notice back in 2 Samuel, that Saul had a zeal for Judah and for Israel. And because of that, he decided to strike them down. And so David is left with a challenge, and that challenge, as you read that, I won't read it verbatim, but he spares, he had spared the son of Jonathan, his beloved friend, but he gave seven of Saul's relatives into the hand of the Gibeonites, and they hung them, and then they just let them lay there, basically. They never did bury them. But the, the mother of one, the mother of five of those young men, stood guard basically for six months and didn't let the birds of the air or the beasts of the field touch them. Finally, David buries them and he also picks up the bones of Saul and Jonathan that had been buried in another location and brings them back and buries them. And so it's a unique and an odd story. But what do we get from it? What can we get? Let me ask you, do you consult God before you make decisions? I don't know about y'all, but in my life, I've not always done that. I'd like to think that I do a good job of it, but to be honest, sometimes I don't. Israel did not do that. And because they did not, we don't have a prophet running around here going to say, thus says the Lord to us. But do we consult God? Do we seek his word? Do we ask him about those things? Israel got in trouble because they didn't do that. But they kept their word, and David was left with a mess because um, one of the other kings, Saul, did not. But the other things, covenants are serious to God. Think about the covenants that we enter into. Perhaps the most formal of those for us is the covenant of marriage. It's a serious matter before God. But not only that, when we agree to do things, the Bible tells us, let our yes be yes and our no be no. When we agree that we should be good and should we keep our word. 
And finally, if you read that story about the Gibbonites, the Gibbonites became basically slaves. They weren't killed, so you'd have to flip a coin. Do you want to be killed or do you want to be a slave? Um, but their, their descendants were woodcutters and water bearers for the altar and for the people of Israel. They did the tree chopping, the wood cutting uh, to keep the, the altar and the temple and the tabernacle going and carried the water for the basins and for the people of Israel. But God, if you look at the story, God still cares for everyone. It's a story of integration as those Amorites, those Gibbonites then were under the protection of Israel and they were part of that group, although they were not of that group, if that makes sense. But God cares for all people. The storyline moves from there into just wars. David, if anything else, was a warrior king. He had wanted to build a temple for the Lord, but God told him there was too much blood on his hand that his son would do that. But there's always someone there. So notice with me just really um, one section here. Let me find it real quick. Should have highlighted it, right? Here it is, right here. Starting in, let's go to 2 Samuel 21, 17. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, or Zeruru, came to his aid and attacked the Philistines and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with battle with us to battle lest you quench the lamp of Israel. And so there's story after story here of battles and wars and giants that are being killed. There's still those giant Goliath type giants and some of these are the relatives of Goliath that are being slaughtered and killed. But notice that King David for his men was the lamp of Israel. David had been promised something over in 2 Samuel 7 and that that was through his lineage a Savior was coming. The same promise made to Abraham in a sense is that there was this king coming that would establish his kingdom forever. And so for Israel, David seemed to be the lamp of Israel, that light, and they didn't want him to be in danger. And my question is for us, What's our light? What's our lamp? By what do we see where we're walking in the darkness of the world? What is it that shines that light for us? Hmm? The Word. Absolutely, the Word. Jesus is that light, that Word. Jesus would say, I am the Word. I am the truth. I am the way. And so as we walk in a world that's full of darkness and we have our ups and downs as David has, what is our lamp? As a people of God, as a church, do we hold that lamp in high esteem? Do we want not it to be extinguished? And so these men, these mighty men, these men that are battling, there are fighting giants. And if you, you go back, you, I encourage you to do so. But just like Goliath, the, these spears weighed 300 shekels of bronze. These men were huge. They were larger than life. But yet, these Israelites went out and fought them. 
David did not do what he did alone. David did not accomplish all he accomplished without some other men. But mostly David recognized in chapter 22 that God was with him. Chapter 22, starting in verse 2, David said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horns of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Goes on in verse 7 to say, In my distress I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. David is acknowledging who and where his strength comes from. What about the distresses in our lives? Do we have some? We, we do, don't we? We have struggles. We have hills and valleys that we go up the hills and down into the valley. And look at the beauty of what David says. That God is his fortress, his deliverer, his rock, and he takes refuge. And that warrior type mentality, he's a shield in the sense of the altar, the horn of my salvation. He calls on him from his distress. Then there's a section talking about God delivering him in the battles that he had. But over in verse 19 it said, They confronted me in the days of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Verse 22, For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and I, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanliness in his sight. It's interesting that David would say such things. As we know about his life, but we also know who he trusted in. In the midst of his trouble, God would say that David was a man after his own heart. Verse 33. This God is my strong refuge, and he has made my way blameless. He has made my feet like the feet of a deer, and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hand for war, so that my arms can, can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your gentleness made me great. And lastly, skip, skip over to verse 50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David, and to his offspring forever. So it starts with acknowledgement of who God is, and how great God is, and what God has done for him. And it ends in the same idea that it's God who is the salvation, who is doing these things. And so I, I would ask us, as we wrestle with the troubles, the ups and the downs, the battles and the wars, the Bathshebas, the, the census, in a minute we'll see a census being taken, the people that will turn, the, the brother, son, who would have him killed. 
Well, I hope all that's not in our own lives, but the symbolism of, of the struggles that we will go through, that we will lean on and acknowledge God. God who has prepared a way, from, uh, a way for us. Chapter 23 starts with an idea of the last words of David, the oracles of David. But he said that the Spirit of the Lord speaks to me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And you know, I've had several lessons recently that take me back to Psalms 1. The idea of just meditating on God's word, putting God's word in our lives and letting it dwell within us, letting it sprout, letting it grow, letting it make us yield fruit in all our seasons. That, that that word being like that river of water that strengthens us. David, in his last words, he understands that. But he said, but worthless men are like thorns that, have, that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. And so you see an idea that is not foreign to the New Testament, an idea of what, it, what it's like to prosper and what it's like not to prosper, what it's like to follow God and the analogy of those that are wicked, those that are not following God. There's a sense of a worthlessness because we have been created in the image of God to do good works. And when we don't put those in place, we are not fulfilling what God has made us for in his image. And therefore, when we're not proclaiming him in Christ, when we're not serving him through Christ, we have become worthless and therefore thrown away. The script then goes into a story of his mighty men, man after man, about 37 of them. And I won't get deep into them, but his mighty man, Mighty men. Just interesting, I'll point one of them out to you, one that you know of his name, but maybe not in this way. But verse 39, the last one mentioned, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. And all these men, these mighty men that went out and they battled, and some of them fought seven and eight hundred at a time. There was the, the idea that they were standing their ground against the Philistines, that there was overwhelming odds that these mighty men served. And they served David, and most of them, not only David, but God faithfully. Then David decides to take a census. Perhaps, I would argue, maybe more costly for Israel. Well, I wouldn't argue it. More costly in lives for Israel than any other sin. But in chapter 24, verse 10, but David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolish. David has called for a census that God has told him not to do. And David has numbered the people. And God will give him three options. Of, of how, that, how that punishment, if you want to say, or the repentance will go. 
But there's pestilence in the land. Many, many people die. It says, and they died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. When the angel of the Lord stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the calamity and said to the angel who was working destruction among the people, it is enough, stay your hand. And so David's sin cost Israel the lives of 70,000 men. David had said that he sinned and God had issued some punishment. But David still desired to make things as right as he could. In verse 22, Then Aruna said to David, Let the Lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering and the threshing sleds and the yokes of oxen for wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. But the king said to Aruna, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, that cost me nothing. Finally, the last verse, the last sentence in Second Samuel. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land, and the plague was averted from Israel. So King David, ups and downs, started out with a zeal for God. I'd say, I dare say lost that zeal, but lost his way in the middle of success. But he found his way back. He found his way home. He found his way back to repenting, responding to God, loving God, serving God, worshiping God. And in his imperfection, and like David, us, me, and therefore I assume some of y'all, we have our ups and downs. We have our imperfections. We have our moments of serving ourselves instead of serving the king. Sometimes we get in the way. But the good news is that we can come home. There is no sin that cannot be forgiven. There may be consequences that are long-lasting, and you see some of those here. The sin with Bathsheba cost David much devastation in his own home. His own boys killed each other. They fought each other. He was cast out of Jerusalem. I'm not telling you, you can't, that you won't have consequences, but you can have peace in the middle of a storm with Christ. Come home. Repent. It's interesting that after all this, that this threshing floor, which many argue is where the Temple Mount is, I, I don't know for, for a fact. It makes a little bit of sense. But it's uphill. They say it's uphill of Mount Zion, which is below the Temple Mount. But he would not offer to God something that cost him nothing. And so keep in mind what the idea of a sacrifice is. A sacrifice for them was blemish, was, had no blemishes. It was perfect. But there still was a cost. In our society today, it's easy. We want somebody to give us something. Well, serving God can cost us something, but if nothing else, it costs us, well, it costs God his son. And so whatever it costs us is immaterial and small in comparison to the price that's been paid for us. So think about David this, this, uh, this week and this month, and we'll, we'll have a different series this coming year. But King David, of all the ups and the downs, 
and what we know about his life. I was thinking this morning, how many of us would want a book written on our lives? Anybody? I don't know that I would. And I wouldn't. I've written, I've read lots of biographies and I don't know if I've read any, that many autobiographies written by the, the, the individual, but there's a lot of things omitted. Uh, I would hope that in my life, in my story, there might be some chapters missing as well. But King David, in the middle of the bad stuff that we know, God said that he's still a man after his own heart. Now he gives an exception for, says, except in the matter of Uriah. But a man after his own heart that seems to be and is pleasing to God. And so we can be too. So with that, the lesson's yours. Thank you.